So some of you are thinking, I've seen that before. It went viral like five years ago. So time flies, right? That was five to six years ago that that was being shared and passed around. Here's the thing, though. If you just showed up at church for the first time, right, like if you, this is your first five minutes in church, you might have no idea what some of the things they just said meant. But if you've been in church for about five years or more, all that stuff vibes with you. Because we got so many things we say in the church, right, churchy cliches and, and just uh, uh, ver- stuff we say and phrases that we understand because we're a part of the same culture, right? But, but sometimes people outside are like, wait, what are you talking about? The video I wanted to show tonight, uh, it's the comedian John Chris. You've probably heard of him. His videos get shared all the time all over Facebook. But it's an older video. It was on BuzzFeed, which is not a uh, Christian uh, source. However, he was... He was there with tables full of, of non-churchgoers of, say, my generation, and he was asking them, what do you think this means? Or what do you think that means? Like, he, what was some Washed in the blood. Like, what do you think this means? And then he would get answers. One of them was, uh, I see your fruit, right? So that got a little colorful. And then the reason I couldn't show that video is, is he asked them, what is a love offering? And let me tell you, those answers were wild, right? Because we use those phrases, and we think, oh, just a love offering, yeah, I understand, but people that aren't a part of the church culture, they're like, what is a love offering? What is that? And there are so many churchy cliches, and some of them are harmlessly overused jargon like the video we just watched. But the reason we're in this series is there are phrases that get commonly thrown around the church, volleyed back and forth from the pulpit and pews, and we talk about them like they're straight out of the mouth of God. But think about some of these phrases. God never gives you more than you can bear. You're never more safe than when you're in the center of God's will. It will happen if you have enough faith. Or as we looked at the last time we gathered together, God's love doesn't see color. Right? Love should be colorblind. These aren't just harmless jargon. These phrases can be dangerous. These beliefs can keep us from careful thinking about complex issues. They can justify our own bias and behavior. They can do hurt and damage when spoken from ourselves to others. We're in this series called Myth Busting because you can pay a high price for living your life based on misconceptions and half-truths. The verse that sparked this whole series is I was reading through the Bible last year. It's in the Amplified Version. It's Galatians 5.9. It says, a little leaven, a slight inclination to error. Leavens the whole batch. It perverts the concept of faith and misleads the church. So the questions we should ask in light of this verse and the questions that we've been asking ourselves is how many of my missteps were because I was being misled by misconceptions? How many of my headaches are being caused by half-truths that I'm operating from? How many heartaches have I dished out because I'm dishing out these half-truths to other people? See, we've said it in this series, the truth will set you free, but half-truths can do great harm. They can hurt. And that kind of has become the slogan for this series just naturally. But even that, the truth will set you free. I think we need to look at the context for the truth setting us free. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32, he says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So what we see here is that we're not set free automatically. We don't receive freedom passively. He actually talks about holding to his teaching, and that sets us free. Knowing his truth, and that's how we're set free. 
But here's the reality that we've talked about in this series. Less than 30% of Christians in their lifetime will read the Bible from cover to cover. Another statistic in a recent survey, 82% of Christians in the church in America don't open their Bible outside of a worship service on the weekend. Translation, they're not opening their Bible, right, voluntarily. What happens is we're a church where we read verses of Scripture, but we're not reading the Bible. We're missing out on the content and the context that brings meaning to what could be half-truths. We're missing the full truth. So many have what we call a copy and paste faith where we hear this quote over here in a video and we see this verse on our feed and we begin to paste it all together and piece it all together. And we end up, again, missing out on the Bible's greater content, which provides context. And in the end, we don't know the truth, so instead of living free, we're misled by half-truths. And tonight's myth is certainly a result of all of the above, but word for word... It's not even what you would call like a half quote. It's a full quote. It's the words of Jesus Christ in Scripture. But before we get to the, the myth, I've got a confession. I went somewhere. I, I always tell myself I'm not going to go. Right? But, but Romans 7, right, sometimes I don't want to do things, and I do them anyways. Right? I was online reading an article. Uh, it was news, and I scrolled a little too far. Right? Go past the last sentence, and all of a sudden you're in the comments. That's like online 101. If you go there, you're just gonna, you're gonna get a headache, right? Because there's always the volley back and forth, the melee. This was exactly that. Two people going back and forth, tit for tat. And uh, one of them was almost impressive because they were on a streak of posts. You could tell they love four-letter words, right? Flowing like water. And then there was an impressive pivot because after a dozen or so of those posts quoted the words of Jesus, Judge not lest ye be judged. Right, that was the ace in the hole. That was the mic drop statement. And, and she didn't just quote Jesus. She quoted the King James Version, threw a ye in there, right? I, was, I would be impressed if this wasn't one of the most quoted verses in our culture. Don't judge. Judge not lest ye be judged. And this quote, judge not, comes in all kinds of shapes and forms, many variations, we got the hip-hop version, only God can judge me. All right. Let him without sin cast the first stone. Again, quoting Jesus. Who am I to judge when I walk imperfectly? Or we should only love. Right. And the implication is we should never judge. And as we've discussed in this series, when we come across a, a churchy cliche or what's potentially a half-truth, we're not sure if it's, if it's in line with the truth. We talked about doing two things. One, hold it up to the, the just life as you follow Christ. Does this work as you apply it in life? But two, look at the greater content and context of Scripture. Look at the entirety of the Bible. What does it have to say about this subject? What does the Bible have to say about this verse in Matthew 7, 1? And we joked a couple weeks ago when we launched this, this is how most people read their Bible, right? You see, judge not, you're like, all right, good. Not going to judge. I'm good. Puts the Bible down and walks away. But I want to read the greater context in Matthew 7, uh, verses 1, and I want to read through verse 6. And this is Jesus speaking. It's within the Sermon on the Mount, and it begins in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Jesus says, do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. And this is powerful as it's in the Sermon on the Mount, because in the Beatitudes, we see, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 
We see in the Our Father within the Sermon on the Mount, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. And so we see Jesus saying again, you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. He goes on and he says, why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls, then turn and attack you. This is an important passage to study, even if Matthew 7-1 was never quoted by our culture. Because when you talk about judging, the church in our culture has earned a reputation for being judgmental, being judgy, for better or worse. People with megaphones shouting down judgment, uh, Turner burnt theology. When I was at William & Mary and I was a student there, there was a group that came once a year. And they would show up with the signs that say, God hates fill in the blank words I can't say in church, right? Signs that say, uh, you're going to hell with an aborted baby underneath. And it's just, I don't even connect the dots of what they're saying, and yet they would show up with these signs, and let me tell you, they left an impression, right? Talking to people around the campus, and the impression wasn't a good one. Now, these people are definitely an extreme example, but I would say that many in church culture try to engage the culture in a similar way in that we engage it to condemn it. Right, to fight valiantly against untruths in our culture, to fight value, valiantly against immorality. Right? And there's nothing wrong in that, but we can become culture warriors. And often our conversations change nobody because a sure way not to be heard is to be combative and to be condemning. You quickly become somebody that people tune out. It's what Mark Twain was talking about when he spoke of people who are good in the worst sense of the word. Or who Gandhi was talking about when he said, I like Christ, I don't like your Christians. You know, the great Christian author, I love him, Philip Yancey, he once said, I rejected the church for a time because I found so little grace there. I returned because I found grace nowhere else. See, the reality is our world needs grace. But not some cheap imitation, not some counterfeit grace. It needs God's grace. It needs God's mercy. And this is the reality And the church should be like the center of distribution, should be where people come and they find grace. So the other side of the coin is you've got the person, again, that's all about grace that would say we should only love, we should never judge. But let me get the myth busting out of the way early so that we can spend ample time in application. Don't judge is a partial quote as we see here. And ultimately a half truth. And this half truth like the others we'll look at in this series, it can do damage and it can hurt. Because in the name of inclusion, so often we try to get rid of the bad news of the gospel. Without the bad news, though, there is no good news. But in our culture, it's hard to graciously take a firm stand on truth or quote-unquote judge anything. Because to our culture, in our day and age, truth is relative. We talked about it many times a couple years ago, Oxford Dictionary. Their word of the year was post-truth. And judging is pretty problematic when there's no such thing as truth. Tolerance is now deified, but it's defined as everybody is right. And nobody has the ground to judge. But again, when you come across 
something and you're not sure if it's a myth, you're not sure if it holds up to God's truth, again, hold it up. How does this play out in life? If we just apply this across the board in life. Think about applying this practice of relativity and no absolutes and no judgments in other places in life. Like a doctor that operates by any medicine is as good as the, as the next, right? Is going to end up hurting more people than they help. Or an engineer that thinks, well, any measurement goes. They're going to be building buildings and bridges that collapse and, again, hurt more people than they help. We see it again and again through life that some things work, some things don't. Some answers are right and some aren't. Why do we resist this reality when it comes to morality and spirituality? You know, living with a loose grip on morality is like driving with a loose grip on the wheel. You end up breaking things. And hurt people hurt people. It's just this cycle we see in our culture. And again, that's why our culture needs grace, because it needs healing. But not at the cost of truth. That's why Jesus doesn't tell his followers, don't judge, followed by a period. Jesus tells his followers, don't judge, followed by a comma and more thoughts on it. Matter of fact, Jesus says in John chapter 7, verse 24, judge correctly. Not surprisingly, that's a much less quoted verse. But Matthew 7 is merely pointing to the tension and the danger of doing it incorrectly and poorly. Saying, don't judge rashly and wrongly, do it with caution, do it with clarity. And luckily, the greater content and context of the Bible gives us some clarity. We aren't left with a difficult-to-discern half-truth. We're given greater context and clarity. Matter of fact, the Bible speaks so much to judging that it provides this filter of principles to operate through. They're present in the greater context of Matthew 7 as well as the Bible. Judging is mentioned in the New Testament 114 times. 114. So we get a pretty good collection of do's and don'ts, which is what I want to spend the rest of our time looking at. Clearly, we're not going to exhaust 114 verses in the next 15 or so minutes. But I do believe there's some do's and don'ts that we can use in life. And the first would be, don't judge the unbeliever. Now, let me explain. Jesus says, don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls, then turn and attack you. Basically, you're giving them something that isn't edible. You are. They're coming after you, right? These pigs. But some take this as saying that there are people whose lives are so dirty, who are so jacked up, whose minds are so hostile that you shouldn't even go to them with God's truth. Don't even waste the gospel on them. Now, I would tell you tonight, that's wrong. Why? Because Jesus, if that's what he meant, he is the biggest walking contradiction and hypocrite of all time because he's doing with his life what these people are thinking he's saying not to do in this verse. Jesus was the treasure of God the Father, the treasure of heaven, and he was given to us. Let's be serious. We were sinners, pigs spiritually. We trampled him, hurt him, put him on a cross. That's the truth of the gospel. But Jesus knew that this was coming. He knew rejection was coming. He warned his disciples so they wouldn't be surprised. And in this verse, Jesus is saying, don't be surprised if they attack you. Don't be surprised if they turn on you. Jesus isn't criticizing the pig. He's criticizing the caregiver. And you could preach a whole sermon on this one verse, and I don't want to go down a lengthy rabbit trail, but in light of these verses on judging that directly precede it, you see Jesus saying, don't waste. Don't waste valuable things. Don't waste your time. You want to waste your time? Spend time judging non-Christians by Christian standards. It sounds foolish when you say it, and yet we do it all the time. But we should ask, why do I expect people who don't love Jesus to live as if they love Jesus? 
Why do I expect people that don't live under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of God's word and scripture to live with the same convictions that I have? But we do it all the time again and again. They're living according to their own convictions. And guess what? They're doing it well. The way we can be good salt and light and have an influence is if we focus, am I living according to my convictions as well as they're living according to their convictions? But maybe you're still not tracking with me. Consider this. Getting people who don't love Jesus to live like they love Jesus is simply going to fill hell with better people. The goal is love Jesus. The goal is come to Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.12, it's not my responsibility to judge outsiders. He says it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. We'll get to that. He says God will judge those on the outside. You know, I hear people say, way too often it's worse than it's ever been our culture is 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 worse than it's than it's ever been we got the worst of it these people slept through history class <laughs> especially roman culture that the early church paul was writing to these churches in roman culture and you look at roman culture women were second class citizens slavery ran rampant sexuality was perverted promiscuous and approved of and celebrated Abortion wasn't just abortion. You could leave your baby on the side of the road for the animals to take care of. All of these things were going on. Why is it so easy to forget this was the case? Because the Bible doesn't waste time condemning what was going on outside of the church. It spends time addressing the behavior and habits of those inside the church. When those issues are addressed in Scripture, it's as a reminder to those inside the church that, hey, we're supposed to be past that. We're not supposed to do that anymore. Because Jesus, he draws a hard line against sin and untruth and a distortion of truth. Matter of fact, his intolerance for sin and untruth is what took him to the cross to die for us. Jesus took a cross for untruth and our sin. But people, he loved people. Did he accept everything they did? No, but he accepted everyone. Even those that the religious leaders gave a stiff arm. Or you look at the woman caught in adultery in the gospel of Luke. They throw him before him, throw her before him. This is where we get the line. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Because none of them throw stones. They all walk away. Jesus turns to her. What does he say? He says, neither do I condemn you. Powerful statement of grace. But then what does he say? Now go leave your life of sin. This is truth. And we see something, an important distinction that we should recognize between condemning and condoning. See, just because I can't condemn anyone doesn't mean that I condone the actions of everyone. Right? Just because you can't condemn somebody doesn't mean that we condone the actions of everybody. That first is a grace. The second is a recipe for anarchy and chaos. That's why Jesus said, hate the sin, love the sinner. Oh, wait, he didn't say that, right? He didn't. What did Jesus say? Love your neighbor. There's a very powerful difference because when we say hate the sin love the sinner who's the sinner not me him not me her not me them when we say hate the sin love the sinner it's a recipe for self-righteousness Jesus says hey love your neighbor right love the person that's next to you not beneath you surrounding you love your neighbor and here's the thing you and your neighbor if you're a follower of Christ and they're not, you're going to disagree on a lot because you disagree on a lot. 
They don't have your same convictions. They're probably going to disagree with where to put your money, what to do with your body. And that's going to happen because they're living according to different convictions. Rather than fighting to agree, coming with truth but no grace, or rather than pretending to agree, showing grace but no truth, let's just accept the fact that we've got different worldviews and get to loving them. That's the, the step we so often skip, but it's so important. But come on, I don't want to spend too much time on each one. The second that we don't judge is preferences. Paul says in Romans 14, 13, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Paul doesn't stutter here. Paul's pretty clear and adamant. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. But let me take you back to high school English. When there's a therefore, you ask, what is the therefore, right? What is the context for this verse? Romans 14 deals with some wild stuff because we just talked about the early church was surrounded by some wild stuff. There was pagan worship. There was animals being sacrificed in these pagan temples. And in Romans 14, Paul's dealing with this debate in the early church. Can we eat this meat that is sacrificed in these pagan rituals and pagan worship in these pagan temples? And really, there was a good argument for both. Some people were like, if you eat that meat, you might as well have been a part of worshiping that pagan god. And others, I probably would have been in this camp because I love some bacon and meat. I'd be, hey, man, like, <laughs> what's wrong with eating the meat? And apparently somebody, think about it like, think about it for a second. If there was Twitter, Facebook, and comment sections in this day, how many brothers and sisters in Christ would have been at each other's throats over this issue? They didn't, but they had Paul. Apparently somebody reached out to Paul because in the letter to Romans, he gives an answer. And it's probably not what they were expecting. His answer is basically, you're both right. <laughs> he says in Romans 14, 14, and then 22 through 23. Sorry, I realized earlier that's pretty small. So let me read it here. I know and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person it is wrong. Then he says in verses 22 and 23, blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you're sinning if you go ahead and do it because you're not following your convictions. So Paul makes a powerful point, and it's one we should heed lest we fall into legalism. We so often confuse what we don't like with what God forbids, right? We confuse morality with matters of conscience. Now, we need to take note. Don't get it twisted. God forbids things in Scripture. Timeless morality. We're talking murder, stealing, sexual immorality, adultery. There are things in Scripture that are black and white, repeated again and again, right and wrong, clear as day, clear-cut commands. But then there's matters of conscience, matters of preference. I've shared this before. I was an alcoholic from my teenage years till I was 21 and got saved, raging alcoholic. So when I got saved, my commitment was I'm not touching alcohol. So for seven years, I didn't touch a drop of alcohol. Now, did I think it was a sin for my dad, who makes a practice of when we order pizza, he drinks a beer with his pizza? Did I think my dad was sinning? No, I don't. I still don't. But I've never seen my dad tipsy even. Never seen him drunk. Now, the Bible, again, speaks against drunkenness. But alcohol, to me, it's a matter of conscience. It's like what the believers Paul was addressing wanted to know, what's the deal with the meat? He was like, doesn't sit right with you? Cool. But don't condemn those that do. There's countless others' examples 
of preferences where we will draw a line in the sand and then build our trenches and go to war. World War III almost broke out once over homeschooling versus sending your kid to school. How dare you? Like, how could you? Like, how could you even? Tattoos. Right, who gets those, right? Yeah. Every year, there's a war over celebrating Halloween. Right? Should you do it? Should you not? How could you celebrate that with your kids? Secular music. Is that secular? Is she secular? Like that video, right? Should you listen to secular music? Look, God is going to place convictions on your heart. I know most rated R comedies, I'm not going to watch because I just know where they go every single time. But I'm not condemning somebody who watches one, right? We draw all these lines in the sand over preferences and then go to war. Jesus says the world will know us by our love. So often the world knows us by our pettiness because we go to war over stuff that is just preferential, right? Matters of conscience. Why? Because we... We make some of the harshest judgments. It's ironic. We make some of the harshest judgments in the places that Scripture has been the least clear. And we end up ripping on things that God's up in heaven, like, shrugging. <laughs> and this buys into the lie that God is restrictive. You look at Scripture. There's so much that God leaves open. And yet our impulse is like the Pharisees who made some 613 extra laws to live by because they thought it was almost, you know, too wide open. We got to restrict it a little bit. And it just paints this picture of a God that is restrictive. Look, the things left out of the Bible weren't left out because God ran out of room or didn't get it in there before the publishing deadline. He's not in heaven hoping somebody will fill in the blanks for him. So let matters of conscience, matters of preference, what the Bible is not clear on, Paul would say to you, stop judging each other for them. But do judge. It's already up there. Do judge yourself. This is why I want to look at two that show why this is a half-truth. Because in Scripture, there are areas we are supposed to judge. We should judge ourselves. Jesus doesn't say ignore the speck in your friend's eye. He says before you deal with that, deal with yourself. He definitely says deal with yourself first. Because at the heart of Matthew chapter 7 and the passage we read is this issue of self-righteousness. Hypocritically judging people from this elevated position. And here's the thing with self-righteousness. We are terrible judges of ourselves. And I would tell you tonight that self-examination is a community project. You need to invite other people in. Because sin is deceptive. Who is it deceptive to? Look, I have no problem seeing your problem, your problem, your sin, your sin. Where do I have problem? Seeing it in myself. Because sin is deceptive. Man, when, when you're fallen and in sin, you're spiritually blind, right? When you're physically blind, you're aware of it. When you're spiritually blind, you're blind to the fact you're blind. You have blind spots. It says in Hebrews, he's encouraging uh, us to exhort one another. Why? So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need others. We need the eyes of others to help us to look more like Christ. This is why marriage, <laughs> anybody who's married knows is so powerful because you got a spouse with you 24-7 like uh that doesn't line up that needs to be fixed and they say it in grace and truth right Steph does always but personal spiritual insight is often the product of community self-examination should be a community project it's why accountability is one of the disciplines we talk about so much here at City Life it's why relationships are important because you need people in your life 
that will sharpen you. As it says in Hebrews 3, exhort. As it says in Hebrews 10, provoke, right? Strong words about making sure we're walking according to God's truth. And this goes hands in hand with the last one because if you invite people in to judge you and hold you accountable, then you're going to be judging other believers. Okay, so that should probably have a footnote, though. Because inside the family of faith, there should, yes, be permission-giving relationships where you sell people. Like, you can interrupt my life and my thoughts and tell me, hey, that doesn't line up with God's truth. But, again, there should be a footnote up there because this isn't some free-for-all. Like, you're not going to walk up to you and say, that doesn't line up. You're not going to walk up to you, and we're not just all going to be trying to sharpen each other. One of the things about social media is we feel like we have a voice in everybody's life. <laughs> you see so many conversations on Facebook or elsewhere where you're trying to deal with heavy conversations. Your relationship can't hold that weight. Right? God is rarely going to tell you to come off the bleachers in somebody's life and run out onto the field and correct them. I mean, I'm just saying, like, if there's somebody, you know more about them because of Facebook than because of any face-to-face -face interaction. God's probably not going to call you to walk up to them on a Saturday and be like, hey, and rebuke them. Right? But this is why it's so important to have relationships where you're giving people permission. Hey, check me. Right? I have Nate and Anthony and our leaders of this campus checking me. We check one another. We go through questions and ask questions. How are you doing here? What's this look like? Because we want to be able to say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. And we should all be able to say that. But you know what a real churchy version of don't judge is? Is who am I to judge when I live imperfectly. Again, it's a variation of let he who is without sin cast the first stone. We act like we're being polite. Really, we're being passive. We feign like we're being gracious when really we're being disobedient. It says in Galatians 6, 1, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Paul doesn't just say this in Galatians. He backs it up. He corrects Peter. Why does he correct Peter? Because he had a, a defiant pattern of living contrary to God's word. Those are the, that's what you're correcting people for. Things that you say, hey, that doesn't line up with God's word, and I see you consistently living according to this pattern. But let's go back to 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13, where Paul says, it's, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge inside the church who are sinning. Inside the church in the process of sinning. Again, rather than judging those outside the church for living according to their convictions, uh, we would be much better invested to look around those people that have given us permission to, to do life with them and say, are we living according to our convictions? But there's, there's a couple of don'ts to go with this do, and we already went over one, right? To have a relationship with that person. But a couple of others, we don't judge to condemn. Right? If you've, quote, unquote, corrected somebody and they walk away from that conversation feeling shamed, guilty, and condemned, you probably did it wrong. Satan's called the accuser of the brethren, but see, God, he doesn't confront you with truth to shame you. God will confront you with truth to change you. Big difference. We judge in order to seek restoration, not condemnation. This isn't seek and destroy, which is what some people operate from. It's, it's discern and restore. Galatians 6, 1 says, do so gently and humbly. And humbly informs the second don't, is we don't do it to feel better about ourselves. If you correct somebody, you walk away feeling uh, puffed up, feeling better than, then you probably didn't do it right. Galatians says to do it humbly or don't do it at all. Humbly, gently, 
I saw, uh, I think it was a graphic, whatever, out there on the internet somewhere where it said, you know, we asked, what would Jesus do? Don't forget that he would flip some tables. And it's true. Jesus flipped some tables. But we should remember where he flipped the tables. Jesus wasn't up in Roman government flipping tables. He wasn't at the local bar flipping tables. He wasn't walking up to the tax collectors flipping tables. No, he was, he was in the church flipping tables, in the temple flipping tables, amongst those people that said, hey, we follow God. And he said, uh, nope, there's that. Flip the table. And we also failed to recognize exactly what he was doing. Yes, money was involved in him flipping the tables, but in Isaiah 56, Isaiah prophesies, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. The greater context of Isaiah 56 talks about how outsiders and foreigners would seek God and be gathered with his people. But Jesus approached what's the court of the Gentiles, right, an outer court, this place designed for all of these outsiders to come to God and to congregate. And what does he find is that its purpose had been hijacked and replaced. The Jewish insider had used it for their gain and their profit. There was no room for these outsiders and these Gentiles to come to God because it was filled with them trying to make a profit. It was racism cloaked in religion. It was taking a place for community and making it a place for commerce. So here's the key. When Jesus was flipping tables, his heart wasn't to drive people away. His heart was to pave a way for people to come to him that were being left out and given the cold shoulder. He wasn't judging to condemn. He flipped the tables to create a path for people to come into God's grace. And even, I saw this, uh, maybe on Facebook too much, but I saw this too, where it said, look, Jesus flipped those tables, but he was also willing to die for those people whose tables he flipped. If I could have the worship team come up, his heart ultimately, again, it wasn't to drive even those people away, those people making money. His heart ultimately was going to take him to a cross so that the veil could be torn, so that even they wouldn't have to stay in the outer courts. Nobody would have to stay in the outer courts. The veil was torn so we can go into the presence of God, receive grace, and receive mercy. That's why Jesus came. But why did Jesus have to die? Because, yes, God is a God of grace and mercy, but God is also a God of truth and justice. He's big enough for both. Again, the, the hip-hop variation of this is only God can judge me. Well, Tupac made famous. But, you know, so often when we use this, or before I knew Jesus, and I'd say it, it was taken as a license to do whatever. Only God can judge me. But here's the reality. He will judge you. <laughs> we often forget. No, he, he's going to. You know, it was Karl Marx who once mocked religion as an opiate of the masses. I tell you that the opiate of the masses is this post-truth way of living where we think we'll do whatever and we're never going to be judged for it. When we say only God can judge me, should pause because he will. But that's why Jesus is so important and so powerful. Because what's the cold hard truth? The truth is, and I'll tell you tonight, you're more sinful than you would ever dare believe. If we examine ourselves, you just realize more and more just how broken we are. And no amount of self-examination and self-help will fix this. And yet the other side of the coin and the truth of God's grace is that you are more loved than you would ever dare hope or imagine or dream. Jesus loves you. That's why I died for you. And the proof is at the cross. You know, the most important judging you will ever do that one moment of judging, we should all at one moment or another, or maybe again and again, come and ask is, man, 
Is my life in God's hands? Is it under his lordship? Am I in Christ, as Paul says in the New Testament again and again? Am I under the cross and the work of, of his blood given for me? And I hope tonight every one of us can say that. That every one of us celebrated communion because of what Jesus did for you and what Jesus is doing in you. But if we could stand, I know there's many of us have already prayed that prayer, that we're in Christ, we're following him. But God, I would pray that we wouldn't succumb to self-righteousness because we give up on self-examination. And God, I pray that you would help us recognize that this work of, of, of following you and looking more like you daily, it's not one that we're supposed to do alone. It's not one that we're supposed to do isolated. God, I pray that you would give us community, relationship. God, those people that love us, that we give permission to speak into us so that we can look more like you, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we will be a church that lives according to our convictions. Some of us, we don't need to know more. We just need to obey more of what we know. And God, I pray that you would, God, in your Holy Spirit, God, that, that's a conviction. God, this knowledge that we can do better, and you give us the grace to do it. Nobody would leave here feeling condemnation because you're not there yet. God, I pray that your grace would be on each one of us. God, let your Holy Spirit be on each one of us. Fill us again tonight so that we can be the salt and the light that you called us to be. One, because we're living according to your convictions, our convictions, and two, because your Spirit gives us the courage and the boldness we need to be those agents of love as we take those cards or go out back to our workplace and have those conversations, God. We know that you've put us here in this church, in this region, to have an impact. But God, I pray that we would understand these do's and don'ts so that we can show your love how you want it to be shown. Jesus, we thank you that you came in grace and truth. We thank you that even though we're more sinful than we would ever dare believe, God, we're more lo loved than we would ever hope. And we worship you for it and we praise you for it. We go back into worship in this time to worship you, Jesus Christ. If you need prayer for anything, I'm here. The Hiltzes are in the back. They would love to pray for you. But let's worship and let's praise.